Welcome to a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide for January, February and March 2013. Titled Origins, this podcast is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Lesson 7, February 9-15, Through a Glass Darkly. Sabbath afternoon, February 9. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, sometimes we are mystified by the things we read in your word, but your Spirit clarifies them for us. And as we study this lesson this week titled, Through a Glass Darkly, we pray that we may come to know more of your will for us, to understand what you did in the past, and also to know what is in the future for us. We pray in Jesus' dear name. Amen. Our memory text this week is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 19. The wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. Let's read that again, 1 Corinthians three nineteen. The wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. Theologian William Paley wrote a book in 1802 entitled Natural Theology, in which he argued that one can use observations of nature in order to develop an understanding of God's character. He wrote extensively on the ways in which the features of animals exhibited the care and skill of the Creator. Paley may have made too much of some features, however, because he failed to recognize the effects that both sin and the fall have had on nature. But his general argument has never been refuted, despite numerous and vociferous claims to the contrary. Charles Darwin, in contrast, argued that a God who designed every feature of nature would not be good. As evidence, he referred to a parasite that feeds within the living bodies of caterpillars and the cruel way in which a cat will play with a mouse. For him, these examples were evidence against the existence of a loving Creator God. Though Paley was obviously closer to truth than was Darwin, this week's lesson will examine what the Bible has to say regarding the question of what it is that nature reveals and does not reveal about God. Sunday, February 10, The Earth is the Lord's. A scientist once challenged the need for God. He argued that he could create humanity just as well as any god could. God said, OK, go ahead and do it. The scientist began to gather some dirt, but God said, Wait a minute, make your own dirt. Though this story is only a fable, the point is clear. God is the only one who can create from nothing. God made all the material of the universe, including our world, our possessions, and our bodies. He is the legitimate owner of everything. Question. What's the basic message to us in these texts? More important, what does this message tell us about the way in which we should relate to the world, one another, and to God? 
Well, first of all, we'll begin with Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. And our next text is Job chapter 41 and verse 11. And that reads, Who has preceded me that I should pay him? Everything under heaven is mine. And the next one is Psalm 50 and verse 10. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. And then Isaiah 43 and verse 1 and 2. But now thus says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by your name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. And finally, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. A favourite Christian hymn begins with the words, This is my Father's world. It truly is our Father's world, because He created it. There is no more legitimate claim to ownership than creatorship. God created, and therefore owns the entire universe the heavens and the earth, and all that is in them. Not only does the world belong to God, he claims ownership of every creature on earth as well. No other being, at least that we know of, has the power to create life. God is the only creator, and as such, the ultimate owner of every creature. We are all completely dependent on God for our existence. We cannot give God anything except our allegiance. Everything else on earth is His already. More so, we are God's not only by creation, but, even more important, by redemption. Though a wonderful gift from God, human life has been greatly damaged through sin, and it will end in death, a prospect that denudes life of all meaning and purpose. Life as it now exists for us isn't all that great. Our only hope is the wonderful promise of redemption the only thing that can make things right again. Thus, we are Christ's by creation and by redemption. Monday, February 11, A Fallen World One thing is certain. The world in which we now live is vastly different from the one that came forth from the Lord at the end of the creation week. Certainly, powerful evidence of beauty and design exist almost everywhere. However, we are sin-damaged beings living in and trying to understand a sin-damaged world. Even before the flood, the world had been negatively impacted by sin. 
As Ellen White writes in Conflict and Courage, page 32, In the days of Noah, a double curse was resting upon the earth in consequence of Adam's transgression and of the murder committed by Cain. Question. How was the world cursed, and what were the results of those curses? First of all, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 17. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake, in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And then chapter 4 and verse 11, So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall be it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And then Genesis chapter 5 and verse 29. That reads, And he called his name Noah, saying, This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands, because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. The curse on the ground for Adam's sake must have involved the plant kingdom, because its results would include the production of thorns and thistles. The implication is that all of the creation is affected by the curses resulting from sin. The Ellen G. White quote above states very clearly that the curse upon Cain was not limited merely to him, but rested on the whole world. Unfortunately, the curses due to sin didn't end here, because the world faced another curse which greatly damaged it. That, of course, was the worldwide flood. Genesis 8.21 And the Lord smelled a sweet savour, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing, as I have done. The flood disrupted the system of watering that God had established at creation, stripping the soil from parts of the earth and depositing it in other parts. Even now, rain continues to leach the soil, robbing it of its fertility and further reducing the crop yield. God graciously promised not to curse the earth again, but the soil we have inherited is a far cry from the rich, productive soil God originally created. And to finish today, read Romans chapter 8, verses 19 to 22. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labours with birth pangs together until now. Though these are different verses, how do they relate to what we have looked at today? More important, what inherent hope can we derive from them? Tuesday, February 12, The Ruler of This World 
The Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. Job 1.7 And in 1 Peter 5.8 Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. As we have seen, the world belongs to God, both by creation and by redemption. But we mustn't forget either the reality of Satan, the reality of the great controversy, and the reality of Satan's attempt to wrest control over all that he possibly can. Even though, after the cross, his defeat was made certain, he's not going down quietly or gently. His wrath and destructive power, though limited to a degree by God in ways that we certainly don't understand now, must never be underestimated. We mustn't forget either that, however often issues may come to us in shades of grey, the ultimate battle boils down to only two forces, Christ and Satan. There is no middle ground. And as we know, so much of this world falls under the banner of the wrong side. Is it any wonder, then, that the world is so damaged? Question. Read John 12.31, 14 verse 30 and 16 verse 11 and Ephesians chapter 2 verse 2 and chapter 6 verse 12. What important truths about the reality and power of the evil one is found in these texts? John 12:31. Now is the judgment of this world, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And John chapter 14 and verse 30, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. And John 16 and verse 11, of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And then Ephesians chapter 2 verse 2, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. And Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. And that reads, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. In the book of Job, some of the veil that hides the reality of the great controversy is pulled back, and we can see that Satan does have the ability to cause great destruction in the natural world. Whatever the phrase, the prince of this world, entails, it's clear that in his role, Satan still exerts a powerful and destructive influence on the earth. This truth gives us all the more reason to realize that the natural world has been greatly damaged, and we need to be very careful about the lessons that we draw from it regarding God. After all, look at how badly Darwin misinterpreted the state of the world. And to finish today, in what ways can you see clearly the destructive influence of Satan in your own life? Why is the cross and the promises found in it your hope? Wednesday, February 13, The Wisdom of the World 
As humans, we have gained an incredible amount of knowledge and information, especially in the last 200 years. Knowledge and information, however, are not necessarily the same thing as wisdom. We have also gained a much greater understanding of the natural world than our forefathers ever had. A greater understanding, however, isn't the same thing as wisdom either. Question. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 21, and chapter 3, verses 18 to 21. How do we see the powerful truths of these words manifested in our time and context today, almost 2,000 years after they were written? 1 Corinthians 1, 18-21 For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleases God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And then, just a couple of chapters on, chapter 3, verses 18 to 21. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. There is so much in human thought that challenges God's word. Whether the issue is the resurrection of Jesus, the creation itself, or any miracle, Human wisdom, even when buttressed with the facts of science, must be deemed foolishness when it contradicts the word of the Lord. Also, as stated earlier, so much science today, especially in the context of human origins, begins from a purely naturalistic perspective. Even though many of the history's greatest scientific geniuses, Newton, Kepler, Galileo, were believers in God and saw their work as helping to explain the work of God in creation, Kepler once wrote, O God, I think thy thoughts after thee. Such sentiments today are often mocked by segments of the scientific community. Some even seek to explain away the miraculous stories in the Bible by arguing that they were really naturally occurring phenomena that the ancients, ignorant of nature's laws, misinterpreted as divine action. There are, for instance, all sorts of naturalistic theories that seek to explain the parting of the Red Sea as something other than a miracle of God. A few years ago, one scientist speculated that Moses was on drugs, and so he just hallucinated the idea that God gave him the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. However silly some of this might sound, once you reject the idea of God and the supernatural, you need to come up with some other explanation for these things. Hence the foolishness that Paul so clearly and prophetically wrote about. Thursday, February 14, Through the Eye of Faith 
Psalm 8 is one of the best loved of the Psalms. To David, as a believer in God, the creation spoke of the Lord's majesty and love. What specific lessons did David see in the creation as recorded in Psalm 8? Also, considering what we know about the creation today, the moon and the stars and so forth, in contrast to what was known back then, why should David's words seem even all the more remarkable? Psalm 8, beginning at verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength, because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honour. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Only in the last hundred years have we really come to begin to grasp the vastness of the cosmos and hence our physical smallness in comparison. One can't even imagine someone like David, apart from divine revelation, having any idea of just how big the heavens were. If he was in awe back then, how much more so should we be knowing that, despite the size of the universe, God loves us with a love that we can't even begin to fathom? Question. Read Psalm 19, verses 1 to 4. What did David see in the heavens? Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hid from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Many have looked up at the stars at night and recognized the greatness of God and the smallness of humanity and have praised God for his care. Others have focused on the problem of evil in nature and blamed God for the problems that are, in fact, the result of their own choices or of the devil's activities. To the believer, the creation truly speaks of God's care, even amid the evil introduced by Satan. Yet, even as powerful as a testimony and witness that the created world is, the revelation is incomplete, especially due to the results of the fall and the curses it has brought. So to finish today, read John 14.9 and then think about Jesus on the cross. Why must the cross always be the main revelation to us of the nature and character of God? Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father?
Friday, February 15. Ellen White writes in Medical Ministry, page 98, I have been warned, and that's in 1890, that henceforth we shall have a constant contest. Science, so-called, and religion will be placed in opposition to each other, because finite men do not comprehend the power and greatness of God. These words of the Holy Writ were presented to me. Of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. And that brings us to our five discussion questions for this week. 1. Think about the threefold curse on this earth. The curse from Adam's fall, from Cain's sin, and from the flood. The cumulative effect of these curses, compounded over thousands of years, means that our present world is much different from the way that it was when God first created it. Why then must we be careful regarding the conclusions that we draw from the present world about what it was like in the beginning? 2. Think about the work that science does, especially in the area of origins. There are no written labels to explain what we see. Science is entirely a human undertaking, and the human mind is limited in its scope, and is prone to resist divine authority. Furthermore, Satan's influence is strongly felt in nature, so that much of what we see is incompatible with God's self-revelation in the Bible. Why is it so important that we place greater confidence in scriptures than we do in science, especially when considering unique events such as the creation of our world? 3. We do not understand all aspects of the tension between Scripture and science, but God is far wiser than we are, and we must acknowledge that there is more to the creation than science can ever discover. Why should we, in fact, not be surprised to find some tension between the supernatural events recorded in the Bible and the materialistic approach of science? 4. Look at the Ellen G. White quote above. In what ways are we seeing this being fulfilled in our own church? How can we deal with these dangerous challenges to our mission and message in a way that, while never compromising our position on creation and the word of God, still keeps the church a safe place for those who are struggling with these difficult questions? And question number five. Read Romans 11, 33 to 36, and Job 40, verses 1, 2, 7 and 8. How reliable is human wisdom when attempting to understand the ways of God? What should be our attitude toward the difficulties that we encounter when trying to find harmony between science and Scripture? Job 40, verses 1, 2, 7, and 8. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. Now prepare yourselves like a man, I will question you, and you shall answer me. Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? And then Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counsellor? Or who was first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory for ever. Amen.
Inside Story. Our mission story for this week comes from Dowell Chow, who is president of Adventist World Radio. The Rebel Rebels Prakesh was a Maoist terrorist living in the jungles of Asia. Although only in his twenties, he had risen to the position of commander for his political party in his village and the surrounding area. He had been taught to torture or kill anyone who did not follow the teachings of his political party or give in to his demands. His word was law. He left his home and lived with his troops in the mountain jungles. They raided the nearby villages and terrorized the people. When the rebels needed food or money, they would simply enter a village and take what they wanted. One day, Prakash and his troops entered a Seventh-day Adventist church, planning to steal the offering, terrorize the members, and burn down the church. But God had other plans. When Prakash demanded that the pastor give him the offering, the pastor answered bravely, Take God's money, but if you give your life to Jesus, he will change you completely. Prakash thought little of the pastor's words, but some of his troops deserted his command and joined the church. When Prakash talked with these former rebels, he noticed remarkable changes in their characters. Could Jesus change me too, he wondered. Then Prakash discovered a program on the radio called Ashkobani. The speaker talked about Jesus. As Prakash listened, he sensed that his life was changing, just as the pastor said it would. Prakash became aware that life was precious. He could no longer torture or kill. Prakash knew that he must leave the rebels, but he had taken an oath. Keep your promise or be killed, he was told. But Prakash gave his life to Christ. He was not afraid. One day Prakash called the studio of Adventist World Radio, which produces the program that had brought him to Jesus. I believe in Jesus and know that you teach from the Bible, he said. I listen to your programs and I tell my friends to listen as well. Because of your program, the word of God has reached my village and people all around have come to know about the true God. Recently, Prakash was baptized. His mother, seeing the changes in her son, now believes in Jesus too. Adventist World Radio is an effective tool for reaching people who may never come to know Jesus in any other way. Your mission offerings help to support the work of Adventist World Radio and other outreach programs in every corner of the world. This podcast of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired in Queensland, Australia. It's brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, the Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Remember, God is still faithful.